sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the individual to my right here, along with the managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, we're uh, back to our regular shows after offering a sample of our marvelous and rare bonus episode format last time. And with this episode, we're beginning our fourth year of the show. Yes, I made my honey cake for a little celebration we had, I guess, two weeks ago? I'm not sure that you'd remember about that, though. What's that mean? With the vodka. Ah, well, I invited Mr. Kushner and Chorney up to the house to have some cake, and Mrs. Carswell did not like that, or didn't like that they brought vodka. Mr. Kushner and Chorney are Mr. Ridenauer's best friends now. They work for me, they guard the property, but they can be fun, and I didn't drink so much I forgot your cake. Everyone likes your cake. I hope it complimented the vodka. It's just their way of being social. They're Ukrainian. I know they're Ukrainian. You don't need to correct me. Are you being snippy because of the vodka or because of the rug? It's always something, isn't it? I don't know why it doesn't bother you, too. It's like something living in the house with us, making those noises. We haven't heard any noises for weeks now, and you know what that thumping was. Not the thumping. Could have been the pipes. I'd choose pipes over haunted rug. What I heard last night was very clear, and it wasn't thumping. Ah, yes, the whistling. The rug is whistling now. I just lie in bed waiting for it to happen. That song Mr. Petrovich used to whistle when he worked. You heard him whistle it. I heard the human Mr. Petrovich, not the rug or the bear or whatever. It's haunting. I'm just lying in bed and then it starts. It's chilling. You know the song. Yes, for heaven's sakes. Please stop. Let's just start the show. He seemed so carefree, whistling. He was probably happier as a bear. Not now. Now he's not. Sorry, then. Anyway, uh, episode 68, Nero, Myth and Monster. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area at intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, 
who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have more on Patreon at the end of our show. Ave Satani, a chorus of Hail Satan from the 1976 film The Omen, sets the mood for our discussion of Nero, a figure who came to be regarded as the Antichrist. We'll be looking first at some accounts from pagan historians describing the man's wickedness, and later at the way such portrayals fed into the evolving Antichrist mythology of Christianity. Poison was an important part of Nero's early story. It put him on the throne at the age of 17 in 54 AD. Nero's father had died when he was four, but his ambitious stepmother, Agrippina, sister of Caligula, if that tells you anything, she ingratiated herself with the Emperor Claudius, and the two were married. She'd also hedged her bets by arranging a marriage between Nero and Octavia, daughter of Emperor Claudius. However, none of this would clear Nero's path to the throne, as Claudius's previous wife had already given him a son named Britannicus. As Claudius began to display a preference for Britannicus over his stepson, Agrippina sought out the help of a notorious poisoner by the name of Locosta who arranged for Claudius to be served mushrooms sprinkled with belladonna. Several sources describe this doing him in, but the historian Tacitus records a more interesting story, with the poison being ineffectual or intentionally regurgitated with the help of a feather down the imperial throat. A feather that happens to have been previously prepared by Locosta with a still more lethal poison that does the job. While this puts Nero on the throne, there's still the matter of Britannicus, whom the Praetorian Guard are suspected of supporting. This time, Nero himself consults Locusta. Uh, Suetonius, a historian we'll be hearing from a good deal, describes Locusta's first attempt on Britannicus as unsuccessful. In his book, The Twelve Caesars, published in the year 121, he writes that the enraged emperor called the woman to him and flogged her with his own hand, charging that she'd administered a medicine instead of a poison. Nero forces her to mix a stronger poison, which is tested on a goat, which takes five hours to die, so a stronger version is concocted and tested on a pig, which instantly dies. When this is slipped to Britannicus, it works like a charm, and the next day, Nero has his stepbrother unceremoniously buried in a pouring rain. He rewarded Locusta for her eminent services with a full pardon and large estates in the country, and actually sent her pupils. From the day the Empress Octavia saw her son Britannicus poisoned, she withdrew from her husband, who himself had quickly begun to hate her. In in fact, Tacitus and Suetonius both mention attempts by Nero to strangle his unhappy wife. 
Unsurprisingly, Nero from the beginning consoled himself with mistresses. The first, the free woman, Claudia Acta, whom tradition later changed into a Christian, secretly practicing her religion. Later, she was replaced with the more high-born Papea Sabina. Nero's tutor, the philosopher and statesman Seneca, encouraged these dalliances, uh, primarily as a remedy to the uh, overweening role Agrippina played in her son's life. Beyond uh, Agrippina's political or social ambitions, there was an understanding that the bond between mother and son was a bit too intimate. Tacitus reported observations by the senator and historian Marcus Cluvius Rufus, writing that Agrippina took her desire to keep power so far as to offer herself to a drunken Nero, all dressed up and ready for incest. She did this at midday when Nero was already warmed up with wine and food. Suetonius, along with others, suggests the indecent desires actually arose with Nero, who added to his concubines a courtesan who was said to look very much like Agrippina. Even before that, so they say, whenever he rode in a litter with his mother, he had incestuous relations with her, which were betrayed by the stains on his clothing. However intimate, the relationship between Nero and his dear mother turned quite ugly. Sources speculating on the causes vary. Suetonius simply observes that His mother offended him by too strict surveillance and criticism of his words and acts. Tacitus, however, attributes the friction to Nero's affair with Poppea. Whatever the cause, it results in Nero driving Agrippina from the palace and, according to Suetonius, engaging men to harass her at her home in the country. As the situation escalated, Suetonius reports that Nero attempted to have her poisoned, courtesy, again, of Lacosta, we could imagine. Uh, when this failed, there followed a series of uh, cartoonish attempts on the woman's life. In the first, Suetonius writes that Nero tampered with the ceiling of her bedroom, contriving a mechanical device for loosening its panels and dropping them upon her while she slept. It sounds as if that device was discovered before it could be deployed, but this was hardly the end. There was a further attempt to booby-trap a ship on which Agrippina sailed, but this mechanism likewise failed, and so instead, the crew, who were in on the scheme, overturned the vessel. Agrippina, however, survives the shipwreck also, with accounts varying as to the subsequent events. The version by Suetonius is the most detailed, with Agrippina's servant arriving at the palace to report to Nero on the accident and her survival. The emperor orders... Him seized and bound on the charge of being hired to kill the emperor, and that his mother be put to death, and the pretense made that she had escaped the consequences by suicide. There are a lot of third-person suicides in Nero's world. Tacitus adds a nice touch to the story, with Agrippina recognizing the assassins and her inevitable doom, and crying out, Smite my womb! That is, as punishment for bringing such a monster into the world. Suetonius has a grotesque final scene of the deceased mother and her son, writing that Nero 
hurried off to view the corpse, handled her limbs, criticising some and commending others, and that becoming thirsty meanwhile, he took drink. This scene and references to Agrippina's womb seem to have been melded into a medieval narrative that appears in 1275 in Jacobus de Veragine's The Golden Legend, or Lives of the Saints, in which it's stated that Nero slew his mother and slit her belly for to see the place where he lay in. And then it gets really strange. The physicians and masters blamed him and said, The son should not slay his mother that had borne him with sorrow and pain. Then said he, Make me with child, and after to be delivered, that I may know what pain my mother suffered. Which, by craft, they gave to him a young frog to drink, and grew in his belly. And then he said, But if ye make me be delivered, I shall slay you all. And so they gave him such a drink that he had a vomit and cast out the frog and bare him on hand, that because he abode not his time, it was misshapen, which yet he made to be kept. That is, if it had stayed within him nine months, it might have come out as a normal, healthy child. He was just impatient. But there are still more women in Nero's life to be mistreated, Encouraged by his mistress Poppea, Nero had Octavia exiled to the Campania region, divorcing her and claiming either that she had failed to produce an heir or had committed adultery. The real reason for this was that Poppea was now pregnant with Nero's child. Twelve days after the divorce, Nero married his mistress. When the people of Rome protested the treatment of Octavia, whom they loved, Nero arranged for a suicide. That is, she was restrained and her veins were opened by assassins. Later, Octavia's head was chopped from her body and presented as a late wedding gift to Poppea. But only three years later, it was Poppea on the receiving end of things. According to Suetonius, He caused her death too by kicking her when she was pregnant and ill, because she had scolded him for coming home late from the races. The next ill-fated woman was Antonia, daughter of Claudius. When she refused Nero's offer of marriage, the emperor had her, too, put to death, this time on trumped-up conspiracy charges. Next up was Pompeius' son, Nero's stepson, who, according to Suetonius, the emperor ordered, drowned by the child's own slaves while he was fishing, because it was said that he used to play at being a general and an emperor. All this murdering, quite naturally, was accompanied by increasing signs of Nero's moral and mental decline. From the beginning, a more benign aspect of all this had shown itself in the emperor's vanity regarding his abilities as a charioteer and musical performer, pursuits in no way appropriate to his uh, social class. Fearful judges awarded him the win at races at which he'd fallen from his own chariot and abandoned the competition while captive audiences endured his endless song and lyre performances behind doors locked from outside. Suetonius even mentions a pregnant woman thus imprisoned, giving birth during one such musical marathon. 
Lavish and eccentric expenditures were, of course, part of this. When not occupying her golden cage, a tigress named Phoebe often freely roamed the palace or joined Nero at the dinner table. One particularly lavish party, thrown in conjunction with the Praetorian prefect Tigellinus, took place on a lake where specially constructed rafts adorned with gold and ivory were outfitted as brothels where high-born female guests were compelled to play at prostitution. On another occasion, Suetonius describes Nero devising a kind of game in which, covered with the skin of some wild animal, he was set loose from a cage and attacked the private parts of men and women. Another way in which Nero's sexuality went unchecked, uh, via Suetonius, he castrated the boy Sporus and actually tried to make a woman of him and he married him with all the usual ceremonies, including a dowry and a bridal veil, took him to his home, attended by a great throng, and treated him as his wife. And the witty jest that someone made is still current, that it would have been well for all the world if Nero's father, Demetrius, had had that kind of wife. His fiddle while Rome burned It's history, so they say I can see Well, as you probably know, there was no fiddling while Rome burned, as that particular instrument would not be invented for another 1,400 years. But as I uh, believe I've discussed in another show, the fiddle, when it appeared, was regarded as the preferred instrument of the devil associated with rowdy secular merrymaking where devilish uh, indiscretions might occur and therefore it must have made its way into the spit of mythology as the appropriate instrument for uh, Nero's uh, devil may care concert The Great Fire of Rome broke out on July 18, 64 AD. It burned for six days, was briefly extinguished, then restarted for another three, leaving up to two-thirds of Rome destroyed when all was said and done. As for Nero's accompanying musical performance, which was supposed to have been neither fiddle nor lyre, but vocal, Tacitus describes it as a rumor, while other historians with a bit more of an axe-grinding attitude towards the emperor, reported as fact. The uh, historian uh, Cassius Dio and Suetonius even agree on the musical number performed, the Sack of Troy, or Ilium, an archaic name for that city. Cassius Dio writes, Nero mounted to the roof of the palace, where nearly the whole conflagration could be taken in by a sweeping glance, and having assumed the poet's garb, he sang the Sack as he said, of Ilium, which, to the ordinary vision, however, appeared to be the taking of Rome. Tacitus reiterates the idea of Rome and Troy romantically equated, and Suetonius, who also mentions the costume, emphasizes the emperor's ecstatic reaction to it all. He rejoiced in the beauty of fire, as he put it. Most ancient chroniclers, such as Cassius Dio, and 
Pliny were convinced Nero was responsible for the fire. Uh, Tacitus, who is generally more careful and skeptical of our sources, reported on the emperor contributing to relief efforts after the fire, actually, but wouldn't rule out the possibility that Nero had caused it all himself. Suetonius, however, says he knows exactly how it all went down. For under cover of displeasure at the ugliness of the old buildings and the narrow, crooked streets, he set fire to the city so openly that several ex-councils did not venture to lay hands on his chamberlains, although they caught him on their estates with tow and firebrands, while some granaries near the Golden House, whose room he particularly desired, were demolished by engines of war and then set on fire because their walls were made of stone. The uh, Golden House was the future pleasure palace Nero would eventually build on the spot cleared by the fire and uh, hence the reason for the whole conflagration. But again, according to Tacitus, Nero blamed Rome's Christians. Uh, he writes that as a result, many were being thrown to the beasts, crucified, and burned alive. This particular nexus of Roman and church history is largely responsible for Nero's enduring reputation in Western culture. No achievement in entertainment history has equaled the panoramic spectacle, the splendor, the power, and the compelling human drama of Quo Vadis. It is an experience which cannot be compared with anything you have ever known before. Despite the $7 million budget, the highest of any picture made at the time, this 1951 film saved MGM with its robust box office and initiated a rash of international sword and sandals films produced largely from Rome or Hollywood on the Tiber, as it came to be known. The film's name, Quo Vadis, is a Latin phrase meaning, Where are you going? Words which, according to tradition, were spoken by St. Peter as he flees Rome, fearing crucifixion, to a figure going the opposite direction. It is the risen Christ, it turns out, who answers Peter's question, I am going to Rome to be crucified again. Words that encouraged Peter to do the same, that is, return to Rome and embrace his martyrdom. The film is based on an 1896 Polish novel of the same name by Nobel Prize-winning author, Henryk Sienkiewicz. The film and book tell the story of an illicit romance between a pagan Roman patrician and a Christian convert by the name of Lygia. I'm mentioning all this here, of course, because Nero figures prominently in the story, which is reinforced in modern times. The reputation of Nero, both as villain and fool, the latter particularly in Peter Ustinov's amusing portrayal. You clumsy toad! Isn't the inner agony of my creating enough without you carving me to bits? Take her away. A pivotal scene in Quo Vadis has the female lead, Lygia, condemned with other Christians to be slaughtered in the arena. While some are to be devoured by lions, her punishment is a bit more exotic. In the film, she is tied to a stake and a bull is sent to gore her, while her burly servant Ursus attempts to defend her, eventually killing the bull. One odd note pertaining to the scene, uh, the uh, film's portrayal of Ursus wrestling the bull apparently caught the imagination of Italian filmmakers, and the character was borrowed into numerous Hercules films popular in Italy and his American drive-in fare during the 50s and 60s. Mighty Ursus! 
mighty Ursus. Of all the supergiants who ever shook the world, this was the mightiest. No power on Earth could stand up to this superhuman until he faced the pagan goddess of the island of Sin. Mighty Ursus. There's nothing specifically like Lygia's bull predicament recorded as occurring under Nero, and the punishment of throwing prisoners to wild animals, what the Romans called damnatio ad bestias, condemnation or literally damnation to the beasts, was uh, not invented under the emperor but went back to the second century BC. But the ingenuity of punishments under Nero did contribute to his notoriety. Uh, this particularly was the case for the Christians he blamed for Rome's fire. As Tacitus writes, Nero inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Christians are fixed to posts covered in pitch and dry brush and set alight as torches in Nero's garden in Quo Vadis, and likewise depicted in a monumental 1876 painting by Polish artist Henryk Szymiracki called Candlesticks of Christianity. Well, this particular punishment may seem a bit too grotesque to be true, the standard sentence arsonists faced in ancient Rome was to be burned alive, which supports the idea. Nero was also the emperor under which St. Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified, uh, uh, upside down at his request so as not to blasphemously imitate the death of the Savior, as uh, tradition has it. The uh, traditional place for such executions before the Great Fire would have been the uh, Circus Maximus, but after losing that to the flames, the location for games, races, gladiatorial exhibitions, and executions was the Circus of Caligula, which later came to be known as the Circus of Nero. After his execution, Peter's body was said to have been buried in a necropolis on the northwest end of the circus. And by 326, Rome's first Christian emperor, Constantine, had built a basilica honoring Peter over the necropolis, the one rebuilt in 1626, that is, the existing St. Peter's of Vatican City. And so it turns out, we have Nero to thank for where the Pope hangs that gold hat of his. I shall fly by the power of my own will, and all the world will wonder are you out of your mind? I am God. That's beloved movie villain Jack Palance as a crazed magician performing for Nero in The Silver Chalice, a 1954 film marked by the debut of actor Paul Newman, who later happened to call it the worst motion picture produced during the 1950s. The magician Palance portrays is Simon Magus. He's mentioned in the Bible and the Acts of the Apostles as a former sorcerer who comes to Christianity under the Apostle Philip. However, he retains something of his old ambitions. When Simon saw that through laying on of the Apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, 
Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Peter scolds him for attempting to buy spiritual status, uh, giving us the word uh, simony for precisely such an offense. Well, Simon Magus isn't particularly interesting here, but in the wider world of apocryphal literature and tradition, he looms large and was regarded as the founder, or better, the embodiment of Gnosticism by the Church Fathers. The 5th century apocryphal Acts of Peter and Paul lays out the flying magician story referenced in our film clip, but its ultimate version comes from, again, the Golden Legend. Here, Simon performs quite an array of magic tricks. Sickles, reap by themselves, brass serpents move, stone images laugh, and dogs sing. When Simon arrives in Rome, he wins over Emperor Nero and becomes the keeper of his life, of his health, and of all the city. This alliance is so malevolent that God sends Peter to Rome specifically to defeat Simon. Meanwhile, the magician is further impressing Nero with acts of magic, transforming himself before the emperor's eyes into an old and then a young man, then proclaiming that if his head is lopped off, he will rise again on the third day, a stunt somehow accomplished by substituting the ram in the place of the magician, though it's not really made clear in the text how. At this point, Peter gets involved, and he and Simon engage in a sort of wizard battle. Simon causes the head of a dead man to move, but Peter vests him by causing the deceased to rise up and walk. The crowd that initially favored Simon and threatened to stone Peter loses some of their enthusiasm for the magician, who then plays his final card. He said on a day in which he would ascend into heaven, for he deigned no more to dwell in the earth. Then on the day established, he went up to a high tower, which was on the capital, and there, being crowned with laurel, threw himself out from place to place and began to fly in the air. But as he hovers, poised to ascend to heaven, Peter calls on the angel supporting him to sustain him no more, but let him fall to the earth. And anon they let him fall to the ground and broke his neck and head, and he died there forthwith. News of Simon's death reaches Nero, he is enraged, and it is for this particular deed that Nero has Peter crucified. It's also worth noting that another Simonian tradition involves him working magic by a familiar spirit. Among others, a 4th century Christian text, Recognitions and Homilies by the uh, Pseudo-Clementine, has Simon describing the spirit as... The soul of a boy unsullied and violently slain, and invoked by unutterable adjurations to assist me. And by this, all is done that I command. But back to Nero himself. Toward the end of the emperor's relatively brief reign, um, he was only 31 when he died, actually, he was plagued by conspiracies to overthrow him, both uh, real and imagined. Nero believed his tutor and mentor Seneca was involved in one such effort and compelled him to commit suicide. By the time governors of Roman outposts in Gallia and Hispania organized an actual revolution, Nero had largely isolated himself. 
After a failed attempt to flee to Ostia, he ends up back in Rome, where a courier arrives at the palace with word that the Senate has declared him an enemy of the state and execution is imminent. In fact, this did not represent the majority opinion, and though a second messenger was dispatched with a correction, by that time, Nero had committed suicide. Or a suicide of a sort. Um, lacking the nerve himself, he was, according to most accounts, fatally stabbed by a servant ordered to do so. Vain and delusional to the last, Suetonius reports his final words as... What an artist dies in me! And it's at this point that Nero begins his transformation from corrupt but mortal ruler to supernatural antichrist. The disgraced emperor did not receive a uh, public state funeral, and the senate denied him a resting place in the mausoleum of Augustus, alongside the ashes of the other rulers. Instead, his funeral was a lonely affair organized by his former mistress, Claudia Acta, and two childhood nursemaids, and his remains were interred on land owned by the family. That his end was uh, thus uh, shrouded in relative obscurity encouraged rumors that the emperor had not actually died. And while the patrician class had reviled Nero, the plebeians, entertained by the arena spectacles he provided, yearned for his return. Suetonius writes, Sometimes they placed his image upon the rostra, dressed in robes of state. At another, they published proclamations in his name, as if he were still alive and would shortly return to Rome and take vengeance on all his enemies. The idea of Nero being resurrected, the Nero Verivivus legend, took hold shortly after his death and persisted into the 5th century aided also by the appearance of three uh, post-mortem imposters called pseudo-Neros, who made use of his name to gain followers. Tacitus mentions the first arising a year after the emperor's death. This pseudo-Nero appeared in Greece and was followed largely by deserters from the Roman army. They engaged in piracy until put down by an army sent by Nero's successor Galba. The second pseudo-Nero appeared during the rule of Titus and gathered followers in Parthia, more or less modern Iran. His claim to be the deceased emperor was reinforced by a physical resemblance and performances of songs and musical pieces in the lyre in the manner of the deceased emperor. Briefly taken in by the Parthian king, his true identity was soon revealed, and he was likewise executed. A third pseudo-Nero arose two decades after the emperor's death under the reign of Domitian. A little seems to have been recorded about him other than the fact that he also had found followers in Parthia. By the third century, the notion of Nero simply reappearing to seize political control had grown into part of an end-time scenario, with the returning emperor embodying both unchallenged earthly power and the spiritual evil of the Antichrist. This was fueled by certain texts seeming to present the emperor in this light. One of these is the Sibylline oracles, purportedly uh, representing prophecies of the uh, 
Oracle of Antiquity, uh, mentioned in our Cave Witches show. According to legend, her cryptic sayings had been collected into a volume which, during Rome's Republic, was kept in the Temple of Jupiter and consulted in times of crisis. That particular text vanished with the Republic, but by the first century, or at least no later than the sixth, another compendium of sibling wisdom appeared, and this is the one we're now considering. It's likely compiled of independently written books by Christian and Jewish writers, perhaps a pagan or two. Books 5 and 8, offering hints suggestive of Nero, were probably written in the second century. This passage, for instance, seems to mention Nero's murder of his mother and points to Parthia, where two of the pseudo-Neros gained power. A mighty king like a runaway slave, flee over the Euphrates stream unseen, unknown who shall sometime dare loathsome guilt of matricide and many things, having confidence in his most wicked hands. And many for the throne with blood, Rome's soil while he flees over Parthian land, and out of Syria shall come Rome's foremost man. Elsewhere, it describes the ruler as a terrible and shameless prince whom all mortals and noble men despise, for he destroyed many men and laid hands on the womb. Agrippina, perhaps? And there's this. One who has 50 as an initial. That is the numeric value of the Hebrew letter N. He will be commander, a terrible serpent, breathing out grievous war, who one day will lay hands on his own family and slay them and throw everything into confusion. Athlete, charioteer, murderer, one who dares 10,000 things. He will also cut the mountain between two seas and defile it with gore. Again, matricide and familial murders, as well as Nero's enthusiasm for chariots. Church fathers Jerome and Augustine acknowledged the prevalence of this identification of a resurrected Nero with the Antichrist, while expressing their own skepticism on the matter. Then there were clues discovered in the biblical book of Revelation itself. In chapters 13 and 17, a seven-headed beast is mentioned, leading some to identify each head with one of the Julio-Claudian emperors. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Which was taken as reference to Nero's false death, undone or healed. Of course, any of these clothes could be open to a myriad of interpretations, but given the episodes of uh, cruel depravity we've been examining, especially when directed against some of uh, Christendom's most revered saints, it's easy to understand the desire to make an antichrist of the man. Seems that Nero might have wanted it that way, actually. Nero played his fiddle while Rome burned. He liked his music While Nero is uh, yet to return as the Antichrist, his wicked spirit in medieval times was 
said to produce more localized terrors near his gravesite on the Pincian Hill. Situated in the northwest quadrant of central Rome, the gardens of Pincio overlook the enormous Piazza del Popolo, named for the Basilica of Santa Maria del Popolo. According to legend, the church was founded specifically as a bulwark against Nero's wicked spirit in 1099. An 1885 edition of the British journal The Portfolio, an artistic periodical, offers a nice summary of this story, which will remind some listeners of the legend of the Benevento walnut tree uh, discussed several episodes ago. The people of Rome were affrighted by shrieks, as of tortured souls and ghostly apparitions, which were seen at nightfall in the woods and thickets of the Pincian slopes. So that, as the monkish chronicler says, no man dared pass that way for fear of what he might have to see and hear. In their trouble, the people appealed at last to the Pope Pascal II, who was pontiff at the time when these ghostly visitations reached their climax, and he, advised in a dream by the Virgin himself, went in procession with all the cardinals and archpriests of Rome to the haunted spot, and there, with his own hands, sawed down a certain walnut tree, which had been the centre of ghostly sights and sounds. This he did regardless of the demons, who, with roarings like that of lions, strove to terrify the Holy Father. Under this tree, the body of Nero was found, cause of all the hellish riot, and on this very spot, Paschal II laid the foundation of the high altar of a church dedicated to the Virgin. The legend's first appearance is in a history of the church from 1646, the uh, monkish uh, chronicle alluded to, which makes the spirits around Nero's tomb even more aggressive, uh, remarking that travelers entering Rome through the northern gate were being frightened, possessed, cruelly beaten and injured, others almost strangled or miserably killed. Another account from the 18th century onward mention witches or demons in the form of crows congregating about the tree. Seems to be a much quieter now, though. Well, I don't have anything more specific to Nero, but I did want to provide one last tidbit regarding the character of Locusta, the famous poisoner mentioned in the beginning of our show. For her notorious crimes, some sources say she was eventually condemned to be torn apart by wild beasts. But as a grotesque extra for the crowd and additional humiliation to the poisoner, this was to be preceded by rape by a specially trained giraffe. Now, as you picture this, and surely you're doing so, sorry, you may be struck by the difficulties, the dissimilar heights and arrangement of limbs, not to mention the natural disinclination of both partners to participate. It's a bit much to believe, and in fact, it doesn't seem to be true. 
No ancient source mentions any such thing, though we know a bit about La Costa's Inn from uh, Cassius Dio's comments on the Emperor Galba cleaning up after Nero. Locusta, the sorceress, and others of the scum that had come to the surface in Nero's day, he ordered to be led in chains throughout the whole city, and then to be executed. The original source for the giraffe myth seems to be those about to die, or The Way of the Gladiator, a 1958 book telling the story of the beast trainer who readied animals for fights and executions. It's uh, sometimes filed under nonfiction, and though it contains a wealth of fascinating information, it's actually more of a luridly imagined historical novel. The author, uh, Daniel Mannix, himself worked as an animal trainer, sideshow performer, and magician, which uh, doesn't necessarily reinforce the book's credibility as a sober historical study. Some have offered the defense that something similar is described in an ancient text, uh, not with a giraffe, but a donkey. It's in the second century Latin novel, The Metamorphoses of Apuleius, or The Golden Ass, which uh, tells the story of Lucius, who, while indulging his fascination with magic, is accidentally transformed into an ass. Among the... uh, Many amusing adventures of the ass, Lucius, is one in which a female poisoner is condemned to be raped by a donkey, namely Lucius. However, the sense is never executed. Even as stagehands are preparing the theater for the perverse performance, Lucius escapes. Even an ass has dignity, it seems, when compared to a poisoner. Lucius observes... I was deeply ashamed of performing the act in public and polluting myself by intercourse with that tainted woman. Now, would a giraffe feel differently? Uh, Sadly, we have no way of determining this, but some questions are best left unanswered. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen you don't have to write anything just those star readings help us a lot as i mentioned at the top of the show these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our dear patreon subscribers when you donate you're contributing toward the more than 100 hours of work that go into each episode pledge commitments begin at one dollar and can be edited at any time those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short extra episode in the marvelous and rare format that is a collection of strange historical anecdotes pulled from the old books around here. We also have the Bone and Sickle Candle featuring the skeletal St. Notburga as well as two different mystery kits, each one with unique hand-picked offerings. And we still offer the Krampus book and the show soundscape you hear in the background. One change we've made to Patreon is adding the ability to make a year's pledge all at once. Annual subscribers receive the same rewards as their monthly cousins, but at a 15% discount. Annual subscriptions also allow you to immediately claim any physical reward we mail out, like like the book and the mystery kits, which otherwise are only available after uh, six monthly payments. I'd like to welcome those generous souls who have pledged their support recently. Thank yous to Lucy Graham Cumming, Rob Culp, James Kelly, and Graham of Steel. 
Uh, a few of our new supporters shared a bit of additional information about themselves, which I always enjoy receiving, and which will perhaps give you a better idea of who you're sharing the podcast with. Jessica Catherine is an Australian artist living in London who listens to the show as she paints and is currently creating a series based on Greek mythology. Lorna Lewis, a lover of history with a taste in the cob, finds that the show helps her travel vicariously in time and place. Nora Rubinowski, a practicing witch, like uh, Ryan Holiday mentioned last episode, is also from Appalachia and shares an interest in granny witches. And uh, finally, Styx, uh, just Styx, is fascinated by what she describes as the really weird and messed up stuff people have a tendency to get up to. I also want to thank Bat Grouch for the kind review. But in Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>